five. The number of questions on the ballot for New Yorkers this November 5th or with early voting October 26th through November 3rd. The ballot questions are the product of a year-long review of the New York City Charter by a Charter Revision Commission appointed by New York City's elected officials. The City Charter is essentially the City's constitution. It establishes the governmental framework, authorities and responsibilities of City officials and agencies, and outlines the processes for everything from budgeting to zoning to land use. The 2019 Charter Revision Commission has put 19 proposed changes to City elections and governance into these five questions, each of which voters can approve or disapprove this fall. They include partially instituting a system of ranked choice voting, strengthening police oversight, moving towards the creation of a rainy day fund, and more. Today we are joined by two commissioners, Carl Weisbrod and the commission's chair, Gail Benjamin, to learn more about these proposals. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission in Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Andrew Ryan from the Citizens Budget Commission. Andrew's sitting in for Maria Doulis today because the Charter Revision Commission is something we could not keep him away from. So thanks for being here. Uh, and thank you both for being here, Gail and Carl. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks. Happy to be here. So we are getting close to when early voting kicks off, a nice interesting double wrinkle here with the Charter uh, Commission proposals on the ballot. Folks should be ready to find their early voting site if you want to experiment with the early voting system. As Andrew said, kicks off October 26th to November 3rd. Then there's an off day for the Board of Elections to sort of reset. And then election day is November 5th this year. So mark those dates down. You can find your early voting uh polling site, which is in some cases for many New Yorkers different than your regular polling site because there's fewer of them. So keep that in mind. Look it up at the Board of Elections website. Very easy to find on the poll site locator, um, but be ready to vote because you've got these ballot questions to approve or disapprove, and there's a few other things on the ballot. So Gail, Carl, just briefly before we get into the charter proposals, who are you? How do you come come for this work? You've had long, distinguished careers. Uh, but tell our audiences in, in sort of brief who you are. Yeah, I'm a native New Yorker. I was born here. I've lived here most of my life. I love this city. I have always wanted to work for government. And I was lucky enough to be able to serve in the public interest, which is about the best you can do in life, I think. Um, I've worked for a number of city agencies. I've been involved for many years in land use, first at the Board of Estimate. And then at the city council, once uh, 1989 occurred and the Board of Estimate was dissolved, um, I have worked on the environmental side of issues. I have worked um, throughout my career on policy. Uh, I retired a few years ago and was lucky enough to be asked to chair this commission because of my general interest in government and government policy. And you had spent a big bulk of your career working for the as the director of the New York City Council Land Use Division, and the city current city council speaker Corey Johnson named you as chair. So you had that background working with the with the council. That's correct, Carl. Well, much of my background mirrors Gail's. Actually, I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up here, went to school here for the most part, um, and uh, have always been attracted to New York City government. Um, believe it's uh, um, among the most honorable, seductive, impactful things one can do. Uh, I've been in and out of the government, uh, starting with the, the mayoralty of John Lindsay um, and working for most of the mayors uh, uh, from then until now, until most recently as chair of uh, the City Planning Commission under Mayor de Blasio. Um, I think that one of the things that makes this Charter Commission different from uh, all of its predecessors is that it's the only Charter Commission, uh, I think in history, not appointed uh, by the mayor, and certainly the only Charter Commission that has appointees from uh, all of the citywide elected officials and the borough-wide elected officials. And so it's, it, it is uniquely broadly representative of the uh, elected leadership of the city of New York. And no one elected official, which was important, controls the votes 
um, or the voting process of the commission as a result. Yeah, this was a very interesting process to watch unfold. It, it was a very interesting process, and I was lucky enough to join you in that process occasionally. So thank you very much for being here, and, I, and we get to meet again. One of the interesting things was how broad the mandate was. When you started out, it was a soup to nuts review of the charter, which for anybody who hasn't opened it up is probably thousands of pages if you print it out. How did you winnow it down? You had – there was a city council report, a city control report, reports from different advocacy community groups. How did you winnow down from the whole breadth of what is thousands of pages of the charter to your final um, questions? Well, first we started with a number of operating principles because this is a charter revision commission. And one of them was if something could be done by legislation – or by rule, by mayoral rule, that it's not appropriate for a Charter Revision Commission to take up. And that was a very important item. Secondly, we informally thought that if it had been on the Charter Revision Commission that had been in panel the year before, the voters had already had an opportunity to review that, and so we would not take up those items either. Subsequent to that, after we did all of our public hearings. We wrote letters to all commissioners, including past commissioners. We solicited via our website, our Twitter feed, our social media pages. Um, We met with a lot of people. Um, We decided that the best thing to do was to come up with a set of criteria by which we would judge all of the ideas that came before us. We did that in public, and I think that was something astounding that this commission did. We actually never met except in public at a hearing. Um, We argued about what we should be looking at in terms of that criteria, but eventually, I believe last September, we adopted a set of criteria against which all of these thousand ideas that people proposed would be measured. And September, you mean September of 2018? Yes. Yeah, this Just was so a- that people know that you've been volunteering your time <laughs> for a very long time yeah. here. You know, we at Gotham Gazette, we didn't get to every single hearing or meeting, but we covered a lot of them. And that was very true. It was, it was, you don't see that so often where all of this public discussion is happening among commissioners who've been appointed by different elected officials, come from very different backgrounds. And there was some fascinating public discussion about what should be taken up, uh, how it should be taken up, what should move forward, what shouldn't move forward. I I would just say, uh, just it's a real tribute to Gail's leadership as chair and the staff's work that um, the myriad of proposals, well over a thousand, I think, that came into the commission were winnowed down in a rational and um, effective way. And and I must say also for the public, this was democracy in action, really, because they did get to see the disagreements, the agreements, the the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as someone who has uh, been part of government for a very, very long time, both in and out, and used to seeing um, things that are done um, off the record, behind the scenes, uh, there was there was really none of that here. Sometimes to my utter frustration, <laughs> I must admit. But yeah. but in fact, it was all out there for the public to see, and so whatever one thinks about these proposals and obviously uh, I shouldn't say obviously but I'm here as a proponent of them um, uh, they I think uh, uh, there is a, a certain uh, real legitimacy in how they were created and the thought that went into each of them and the back and forth that led to the various 19 proposals that are before the voters now. And we're going to get into the specifics on those soon, but yes, go ahead. But I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts or reflections as, as for years of the Board of Estimates City Council or City Planning Commission, you've had public input processes as part of your career. How was this? Because you had bur- meetings in every borough. I don't know how many people came out and testified. You might have these numbers. What was the process like in that way, and what did you learn both as commissioners and as individuals who have experienced this for your careers? What was interesting or different about it? Um, That's a really tough question, but an interesting one. 
in part because most people don't come out to public hearings. Most people and most citizens, we still don't have effective ways to reach them and learn what they really think is important. Um, and while we had some robust public hearings, um, a lot of the people who came came because they were involved with different advocacy groups and their group informed them about the hearings, um, advocated for positions. I still think we need to work in all of these, whether it's community board meetings or something like the commission, on how to get input from people who are affected by it but who feel voiceless and powerless. Right. And we and we I'm glad you mentioned community board meetings, but also just the larger voting process. And that's what one of the proposals aims to at least, you know, try to address in some regard. Um, but but that seems exactly right to me that, you know, how do you get a more representative sort of feel for for what New Yorkers want a commission like this to do or what they want their local community board to do or what they want their local city council member to do? It's, it's very challenging. Well, I would say, you know, there were t to me always there were two sort of broad themes that ran through uh, the proposals that we got. Uh, one was what is the appropriate balance between the executive and the legislative uh, branches of government in, in New York City? The other is what is the appropriate balance between the central city and the needs of the city as a whole versus the desires and needs of individual neighborhoods. And to Gail's, to Gail's point, I, I think that one – and certainly something that I saw not only on the Charter Commission but when I chaired the Planning Commission is the, the – people will come out when their own individual – interests are deeply uh, at stake and certainly see that a lot at the at the planning commission um, but but the the challenge remains of how to get people in the city and this or maybe people in the country engaged in the broader issues that we as a society face we as a city face and how the Central city uh, can address the problems that and challenges that neighborhoods have, and uh, and and that's not an easy thing to get the public to uh, be engaged about, and and I think that remains a challenge for all of us who are involved in government. Now, your lens coming into this was not necessarily city government, you know, city government and city governance structures and processes are broken. Right? It was or, or correct me if I'm wrong, but you weren't necessarily coming in and saying, oh, we have a, a bunch of big problems to fix. That's correct. I mean, I think everybody took as a starting point the charter changes of 1989 and how that has shaped the city we see today. Uh, I think that the orientation was what did they get right that is still right today? And what did they get right that may need to be altered because times have changed and altered? Um, there was also, what did they get wrong? Um, so I don't think we came in and said, it's all just crap and we need to totally rewrite the charter because this doesn't work. I think there was a feeling that, well, the this, this city works. It could work better. It could be more inclusive. Let's see where we should go from 89 to now. I think all of us also had pet ideas <laughs> that didn't make it through the process. Mm. My own ideas didn't make <laughs> it through. Well, let's go through what did make it through and come back to those because yes, I think that we wanna is hear, fascinating. We want to hear at least one example of those, Gail Benjamin. So um, <laughs> all right. Question one on the ballot is going to be um, – a bit of election reform, but the of the few things that are within the question and, and voters, you're going to have five questions, yes or no, and each one is a package of proposals under a specific theme. So the first theme is elections, and the, the sort of headline of that is instituting ranked choice voting for certain elections, not all. That is correct. Um, it would be for all citywide, borough-wide, and city council races for special elections and for primary elections, but not for general elections. And this is basically instead of going in and just picking your one candidate that you 
you decide you want to win the race, you're ranking one through five your preferences. You don't have to choose five. You don't have to choose more than one. Right. You, you can could. still vote for just one person if that's what you choose to do. And once the first round of ballots are totaled up, uh, if no candidate reaches 50% of the vote, the person that came in last, the their second place votes are redistributed based on those voters' second preferences. And you sort of continue eliminating candidates from the bottom until somebody hits 50%. Did I do that okay? Yes. Okay. Or the ballots are exhausted. Okay. Interesting. All right. right. So right. And Whoever, person- right. You don't have to hit 50 if there's no other ballots. <laughs> and then everyone's exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> So this, um, I guess, basically what we want to hear from you is why, what the benefits are, why why you put this on there, why you think voters should really strongly consider it and approve it. Um, so go ahead. Okay. Um, first, I think that all of the commissioners were very interested in doing something to try and improve the voting participation in our city and to improve the kind of poisonous atmosphere we often see in elections, national, state, and city. Um, I think that was very important to all of the commissioners, and we looked at a variety of different ways that that might happen. Um, In our discussions, in our research, in our expert testimonies that we had, it seemed that ranked choice voting offered an opportunity where people could express not just the what often happens that I want this person to lose, so I need to vote for this person, not because I like them the most, but because they seem to have the best shot against this list of horribles. Um, But you would be able to express that preference in the voting booth without losing your franchise. That you could vote for the person you really liked And if that person didn't get enough support, you wouldn't have just thrown your vote away. You would still be able to be a part of the elected process. And I think that was important, uh, the idea of people's vote counting and being able to show that your vote counts. I also think that we wanted to address, as I said, the atmosphere where people don't often participate. And in the places where this has occurred, they have seen participation Rise, So I think that people feel more of a sense of inclusion and that their vote matters when you're given these choices. And for me personally, it's also one of the things that all of those places talked about is because candidates so often now narrow band their election. Um, and, you know, first you take the prime voters right. and Mar- you only appeal to yeah. those. And then you target the ones who, you know, with computers these days, you can really target down to the household member. Um, and the rest of the people don't really matter. And this is a way to get everybody back into the election game and to get candidates to do more than narrow cast because they want to have the public voting for them second, third, fourth or fifth. Do you think that there are any surprising implications if this is approved that will happen in elections? What do you think the outcome of elections will change? I I, I think what will be surprising – and I don't know surprises necessarily – predict surprises in advance makes them not surprises anymore. But (laughs) Good point. But I think that what it will do is force candidates to rethink – their strategies about how they approach the voters, as as Gail says. I think what's interesting about not only is this the most consequential uh, proposal on the ballot, because I do think it it really does um, have the potential to have a big impact, not only on on uh, how candidates approach the voters, but also who the candidates are, because I think it'll bring more candidates into the political arena at a time where we really benefit, could benefit from that. But I think, as I recall, and Gail can correct me if I'm not right about this. I you think this wrong? Is, if I'm not <laughs> right, if I'm very, wrong Very nice it. way to say that. She's never shy. Um, uh, but I think this is a proposal that uh, attracted unanimity among all the, all the members of the Charter Commission. And, um, and, and I think that's really remarkable given the fact that we were all appointees of of uh, different elected mm-hmm. officials. So, so uh, among the charter commission members, this got a huge amount of support. And I'll just add 
one other strength to this, which is um, uh, to the to the item scale mentioned, which is it's going to save a lot of money too, because we now have some runoffs where an infinitesimally small percentage of the voters participate in a runoff for some public office that um, uh, uh, it costs us millions of dollars to have that runoff, and now that won't be necessary. Right. Folks should know there are currently runoffs for citywide positions, but not for borough presidents, not for city council members. And the other, I think, flip side of that point, too, is for the borough president positions and the city council elections, when you see these big fields of candidates, sometimes candidates are winning with 30, 35 percent well, of the less, vote. Less, I think, less. in some cases, under 30 percent. Sure. With 17 percent, I right. think. Oh, in the pub, well, yeah, in that public advocate special. With right, low with turnout, 20. those numbers are really uh, stark. Right. Yep. And, and you can win elections with a very small number of votes. Um, so I think it'll be very interesting to see, and I'll, I'll give a little bit of a con here maybe, but on, on both fronts, one, you get winners that sort of seem to have more support widely. That's a pro. <laughs> but on the con side, you get into maybe some of these situations where the candidate who did get the most first place votes in the original balloting doesn't wind up winning in these crowded races. And then you get a little bit of controversy around that result. Well, and in fact, we saw that happen in the Maine right. congressional race where Maine does have ranked choice voting. They love it. Um, uh, voters in Maine voted to keep it, um, but the, the original first place votes had one congressional candidate winning and with ranked choice voting, uh, another candidate won. And, um, and I, I think that... Uh, I think it shows democracy works. Yeah. It's, um, a broader, it's a broader base of support for the winning candidate, right. not necessarily who gets the most first place votes the first time around. And I would say if anyone wants more details about this, that on our, our final report is on the website along with all of the research papers, et cetera, that we reviewed. And so if you go to www.charter2019.nyc, you can read more if you'd like to. And I do want to commend the commission for not only putting all these documents up, but having them in different levels of digestibility. Yeah. You want the three-minute version, you can get it. You want the three-hour version, you can sift through. You can, to your you heart's content. You want the three-month version. Well, you know, or it's almost on three years in your life maybe. Um, Anything else on that one? No, we Let's should move, move along. on to yes. c- Civilian Complaint Review Board. Yes, so there's um, question number two. We'll deal with the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which does investigations of alleged police misconduct. Um, again, we can't on all – we're not going to get to the nitty-gritty of all 19 mm-hmm. proposals that are within the five questions. We did skip over a couple of the sort of lower-profile ones in question one. Question two broadly would sort of tweak the appointments to the CCRB but also give the CCRB some some new powers. Do you want to – Correct. Um, I think it's important to, to start from the perspective that there was a very organized and passionate – presentation at each one of our hearings from persons who were interested in social justice and who particularly focused on the role of the CCRB. Um, That's important because I don't know that any of us would have started looking at it without the participation of those people. It's also important to say that under state law, only the police commissioner has jurisdiction over police discipline. And that's not something that can be changed by charter. But we took a look at what we could do in order to fulfill the promise of the CCRB that this was a place that the public could go when they believed they had been mistreated in some way by an officer. Um, Before the creation of the CCRB, you could go to your local precinct, you could complain to the commissioner, but those were not effective tools. So this was an a real attempt to try and give the public a way to air the complaints and problems that may have been occurring. One of the proposals that is, I think, very important was with the issue of officers who may, in the course of an investigation, mislead, misspeak, um, or outright lie about the occurrences that are under investigation. 
Um, this was hotly debated among the commissioners. And in the end, the commission determined, and I think Carl can speak to the importance of this, that this was something that the public needed to be able to, to do and that the commission, the CCRB, needed to be able to investigate and recommend discipline when an officer, in fact, issues misleading statements in the course of the investigation. It is only about the officer who is under investigation. Um, secondly, in order to maintain the independence of the CCRB, I think people felt reasonably strongly that they needed to have an independent budget, that they should not feel that their activities were circumscribed by a mayor who might want to punish them financially and budgetarily if they were acting outside the scope of what a mayor might think. So we have proposed that there be a baseline budget for CCRB that is equal to 0.67% of the budget of the uniformed officers of the police department. That's an increase from what they get now. But we also felt that was important because one of the things we also heard about was that people were dissatisfied with the length of time it takes for a complaint to work its way through the CCRB. Um, and the CCRB itself, um, I, there was one young man who was an investigator who talked about how many cases he had and that he couldn't get to them. So I think it's important if we're promising people that this is a board where they can redress the issues that they feel of being abused, that we not provide additional abuse in investigating their, their allegations. Um, so it will be a slight increase so that they will be able to hire more personnel and hopefully lower the amount of time that these complaints are in-house. Um, and there's some evidence out there that um, they could clearly do some more outreach and people don't even know that the CCRB exists, right, as a place to go with, yes, with complaints. Yeah. Absolutely. So. I would just add a couple of things. One, as Gail indicated, this was a, a very emotional issue um, because our work was proceeding in um, the context of the Eric Garner cases not being yet resolved. Um, a great deal of tension both among police officers and uh, the public um, on either side of uh, was very, very difficult issues. Uh, I think on the issue of, of ultimately what we decided to do, I think, and what our proposals are all embracing is to add to the gravitas and seriousness of the CCRB while recognizing that ultimately the police commissioner has the power to discipline. But the more we can add integrity to the CCRB's work, um, the more likely it will be, I think, that the police commissioner will continue to honor the recommendations of the CCRB um, and um, and exercise his, or someday hopefully her, authority um, uh, appropriately. And I think that's what this is really all about, is, is simply adding to the integrity of the work of the CCRB. And that's what it was set up to do, and, uh, and, and it strengthens that work. Anything you want to jump in on this, well, or should uh, we move to the no, next one? No, we can move on. Okay, yeah, and I'll just highlight for folks um, on the CCRB, uh, people should read the list. You know, another one of the elements of question two is adding a couple new members, you know, with different appointments, um, and as, as you just said, Carl, to tie into that, you know, requiring the police commissioner to present to the CCRB in writing when they deviate from a recommendation on discipline for officers, you know, that's uh, more Which transparency. Which is important because in the last report um, that we had, in over 80% of the cases, the police commissioner does not um, heed the recommendations for discipline that CCRB offers, but instead takes a lesser yeah, and uh, and getting a written explanation of that, I think, is, is very I think I think this is one of the aspects that might have interesting implications over time for behavior, and I think this will be one to watch. Yeah, and also uh, one of the proposals there would give would allow the CCRB executive director, who runs the day to day operations of the of the board's staff, uh, subpoena power to get materials, video, testimony, etc. Because just quickly, right now. Only the commission 
can authorize that. So they have to meet, they have to vote. And in this age of video and computer, things are overwritten. By the time that happens, they're no longer right. available or accessible. Question three on the ballot has a variety of measures that are sort of grouped together under this title of ethics and governance. Um, they're a little bit of a hodgepodge. Uh, one that really you know catches my eye is this um, prohibiting elected officials and senior appointed officials from lobbying city government for two years after leaving office. Are there any others under that bucket um, that you want to particularly highlight? No, I, just to po- point out on the on the, the lobbying question. Um, essentially what it does is extend the current one-year ban to two years. Mm -hmm. And the state uh, has a two-year ban. We have a one-year ban currently in New York City. Um, So I I, I think in that bucket, that is, uh, and this I think is is probably the most significant change. Beefs up the the ethics uh, rule there. And on the Corp Council, were you- On the Corp Council, yeah. yeah, One of you noted as we- started the um, podcast that um, there was a discussion of executive legislative um, um, powers and one of the changes you've proposed here is to have advice and consent of the appointment for the corporation council by the by the city council where it has traditionally um, been a mayoral appointment was there a certain problem that you had been brought to your attention that you wanted to address with this well there certainly were problems that were brought to our attention um, Corporation Council is the the lawyer for all of the city, not simply for the mayor. So that means for all of the elected officials, for all of the city agencies, Corporation Council represents the city's interest, not the mayor's interest. And there have been times whether I, I, I won't go into which mayors, but there have been times not when elected mayor. officials <laughs> um, have felt very strongly that Corporation Council represents the mayor. And when there's been an issue where an elected official and the mayor's interests are not the same, that Corporation Council has elected that the mayor's interest is the city's interest. So, Well, there was even an issue. There has been an issue under this mayor about uh, the city council trying to file its own amicus brief in a lawsuit or so, there was something around, yeah. you know, so yeah. there, there's been a little yeah. a confusion little bit, over not, whether the Corp Council is really right. the lawyer for both the executive and the legislative branch. Yeah. And for the executive and the borough president, several of the mm. borough presidents mm-hmm. over a period of probably 10 to 12 years have filed briefs or have been part of coalitions that sued the city, particularly on Carl's land use actions. <laughs> um and when Corporation Council determines that you are not representing, that you are not in the city's interest, that something else is, um, the Corporation Council can either give you leave to hire your own attorney, at which point they will pay, or they cannot. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this ended up being essentially a compromise. Um, this is a certainly a tweak in the ba- balance of power between the mayor and the executive. Um, I think it's we all want to see uh, corporation council continue to see corporation councils uh, that have integrity and are appropriately uh, suited for the office. Um, uh, and I, there have been certainly continue to be and probably always will be some institutional skirmishes about what who the corporation council is representing when there are conflicts between the mayor and the council. I think the concern I had about this issue to begin with was not that whether it's appropriate to have advice and consent, but whether it's appropriate to impose, as sometimes happens, conditions or promises on the uh, appointed official to um, uh, promise to do things on situations that may not arise. And one of the uh, proposals here was um, uh, that the Corporation Council could not be, which we didn't adopt, was that the Corporation Council could not be uh, let go without the advice and consent of the Council, which I felt, and I think most members of the Commission felt, would be an inappropriate incursion on executive power. So this ended up being a compromise, recognizing that the Corporation Council, unlike any other appointee of the mayor, really does serve as a uh, lawyer for both the 
council and the mayor and the borough presidents, um, and for the most part does that effectively, but from time to time there's going to be a conflict between um, various elected officials. And this position is filled in a variety of ways around the country. Some cities elect a public a city attorney. Um, some cities appoint with advice and consent. Some cities have a board. So I think we've chosen a middle line, but I think it's important that since this person represents the city, there be some daylight about what their opinions are, how they view questions of who's to be represented hmm. where. I mean, there are some rules in, in law about how you make those determinations. But I think a public hearing in which the public can hear from the Corporation Council and in which the public and the council can ask questions is a good thing. Yeah, right. I was just about to say the practical effect of this, one practical effect of this is that there will be a hearing and a point, you know, a nomination hearing, which happens certain commission, you know, commission board members and the Department of Investigation Commissioner, but but relatively few. There will be a public hearing where the city council will get to ask questions of the nominee of the for the Corporation Council, which will be an interesting hearing, at least for those of us who, who pay attention to it. Question four. Yes. Sid, Question four. We're, we're, we're in the we're in the Citizens Budget so, Commission office, so we spot. better talk city budget here. The sweet spot. The sweet spot of city budget, and this is what I've spent so much time with you guys over the last I don't know however many months, and you were kind enough to have me three times, I think, speak to you, and and then subsequently send in some additional information. So the questions on the city budget, there are. Let's see, four different questions. But of course, we at the Citizens Budget Commission, we're focusing on the rainy day fund. So let's start start there. Um, as you well know, after the city's fiscal crisis in the 70s, there was language added to state law and city charter that requires the city to balance its budget in these strict accounting rules, generally accepted accounting principles. Really do the city a great service on an annual basis, but stop the city from saving up money during the good times to spend in the bad times to effectively have a rainy day fund. How did this – now, this has been proposed in prior Charter Revision Commissions, and congratulations for getting it through to the process and bringing it to the voters. How did this actually end up um, getting it all the way through the process and being on the ballot? Well, I think we owe it all to you. (laughs) I I, I say that in jest, but not really, is that you and a number of other organizations really brought this issue forward. Um, And the more we looked at it, I started my career in government with the then controller Jay Golden – who I have to give a shout-out to. He's the smartest person I ever worked for by a lot. Um, I met him for the first time at one of our breakfasts last month. It was wonderful. uh, And he really believes in public service. But he is the first person who talked to me about rainy day funds. And that was back a long time ago in the 70s. Um, So when this issue came up in our hearings, I think all the members were kind of taken by it because we have had some really good years in addition to some really, really bad years. And we've developed, as most institutions will, ways to work around the law. So while we had to have a balanced budget every year, we could squirrel money away, so to speak, by prepaying on our debt. Now, that's not if your debt interest is very low, prepaying doesn't really make good sense. I think you would. You really can't prepay enough. They're, the city's workarounds have gotten more sophisticated over the years. But, you know, you need a lot when the economy goes bad. And, and we've never been able to roll that kind and, of right. And folks should really understand, I think, Andrew, you're getting at this, the, the sort of importance here, which we haven't seen in the last few years. But the idea that if you don't want library hours slashed or firehouses shut down in a, in a bad recession, a rainy day fund can be very helpful to city government. And I would go a little further, further than that because library hours are critically important. It's been wonderful to see, uh, you know, in the modern era, our libraries open seven days a week. But we in the past have um, – Fight police officers. Oh, fired police officers, teachers, child care workers. We've raised taxes at a time where our, our economy is hurting and, and raising taxes might be counterproductive. Mm-hmm. These kind of things. Now, a rainy day fund isn't the panacea for all things, but taking the edge off the worst and giving the political leaders at that time who face that and representing all the people of New York um, that op- that ability to stave off some of those worst uh, worst um, impacts is going to be a great benefit if this passes and then moves forward. But and you do need there we is do a need second state step legislation to this. Mm-hmm. as um, as was said before. 
Um, after the fiscal crisis, um, when we got the uh, Financial Control Board, part of what was put in, in addition to the GAAP requirements, was that the financial control, as long as we had a financial control board, we would not have a rainy day fund, um, which is w what necessitated these workarounds. So if this is passed, and I hope it is because I think it's really important, either the state will have to amend that portion or we'll have to wait until the financial control board expires. Yes, and if past is prologue, there would be two to three recessions in that time, and we do not have to wait that long. So CBC, I will unabashedly urge people to vote yes on question four on the budget questions, and then join us in, in working with the uh, our, our elected leaders in Albany to adopt that and, and stronger language in, in, in state law so that we can actually have a rainy day fund and start using it. And I think that this will be useful showing that the will of the city is that the city would like to be able to do a rainy day fund. So instead of individuals going up and saying, well, this would be good and kind of being looked at as economic geeks, um, this would be a strong signal to the state, I think, that this is something that is both desired and um, – considered important by the voters. I, I think you're exactly right on the momentum it can build, and I don't feel bad being called an economic geek. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any arguments against creating a rainy day fund that you want to acknowledge and either dispel or I would leave disparage? it to s someone else who does not want to protect <laughs> yeah. New Yorkers during a recession okay. or severe emergency. Uh -huh. Listen, these are complicated devil-in-the-detail questions. And some of those details we might want to work out over time. But getting the ability to have a rainy day fund is the first step, and this vote is the first step. Right. In that there to have a real one, because the workaround that we've been using lately is we've been putting money in employee retiree benefits, mm -hmm. and we've been parking it there. Oh, am I not supposed to say that? No, it's called a trust fund. <laughs> nothing says trust like using it for its unintended purposes. <laughs> There's nothing you're not supposed to say here. No, <laughs> this say is, whatever this is, you we're, say. Whatever we're free you want. flowing here. Um, right, and there would need to be certain qualifications, as you're getting at the details of the yes, state law. Yes, we, 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 we can we can work those out over time. Let's get the ability first. All right, and under question four, city budget, as Andrew said, there's four pieces. The rainy day fund. Uh, is is the highlight, at least for CBC. Um, there's also the guaranteeing budgets for the public advocate and the borough presidents as a... As and a that was really to try and help fulfill the promise of independence um, on the part of the elected officials. Nothing says independence as much as I don't have to go to the mayor for my budget. Especially um, when you're the public advocate and supposed to hold the mayor accountable, <laughs> right? Correct. So yeah. this is... An opportunity to just further the independence of the independent elected officials um, by qualifying their minimum budget. But I would also say for, to the fiscally responsible, if um, there's also a caveat that if there is a general downturn as part of a general tightening of the belt, yeah, that these numbers for each one of those entities can be changed. It's not that the borough president will get this money even if the city is in a recession that's not to be believed. We're reducing police officers but increasing that, and that's yeah. that. And I do want to commend the commission because, you know, the Citizens Budget Commission, we very much um, respect and always want to um, encourage the authority of each mayor and city council to negotiate a budget and set the priorities for the city. And so mandatory budgets are some things that um, are concerning for us, although the commission listened to many people who provided feedback and that flexibility you built in was was the right way to do it. So I appreciate it very much. All right. There's a couple other aspects of question four on the city budget, um, but they're sort of process-related, revenue estimate, budget modification aspects. Um in the interest of time here, let's get to question five. Carl, this might be your, your – Well, we have the like the wonder twins of, of land use in the city before <laughs> right. us here. Yeah. Um, but question five has to do with land use, uh, a couple of process aspects there. Um, highlights? Yeah. I mean these are fundamentally uh, two um, – uh, I think putting – codifying what has largely been practice up until now. One proposal is to respect the fact that community boards don't meet in uh, the summertime frequently, certainly not in August. And so when land use proposals enter the uniform land use review process 
and community boards have 60 days in which to respond. We want to make sure that they get their full 60 days and respect at the same time the fact that they're not, because they're unpaid residents, they're not uh, necessarily meeting in August. For the most part, the City Planning Commission has done that uh, historically, um, but this is a codif- would be a codification of that. The second proposal is to give the borough presidents and the community boards 30 days advance notice of proposals before they are certified to start the land use process. And again, for most, for almost for every uh, proposal that the city itself is sponsoring, um, that 30 days has been not only respected, but uh, there's usually a very long engagement between community boards and borough presidents about what a proposal is. But for private applications, that's not always the case. And so we wanted to make sure that borough presidents, community boards had a 30-day notice before certification so that they could begin to prepare for how they were going to respond. It doesn't extend the EULA process. It doesn't change the certainty of EULA. It is a notice provision, but I think a notice provision that uh, all parties can uh, can respect and, and agree upon. So, Anything you want to add? Any? Yeah, I would say that as applications have gotten more complex, um, I think community boards' job has become somewhat harder in trying to understand them. And it is also true, uh, Carl didn't say this, but he, that when applications are filed, they are sent to the local community boards. But that whole pre-certification period is a period in which the Department of City Planning works with the applicant, whoever they may be, to try and shape the proposal in a way that they believe is beneficial and would be approvable by the commission at some stage. So the application that ends up being certified into ULERP may may not bear a lot of relationship to that which was originally submitted. So this is an important period for the community board to get that early warning in terms of the private applications, certainly in in Manhattan, in some of the boards in Brooklyn or Riverdale, developers who do work there know how to go about doing it. And they are already doing yeah. this. They are already meeting with the community board months and sometimes years before to go over what they want to do, what the community board would find acceptable. But Carla's right. This will make that happen for all boards whether they are sophisticated and the developer wants to get their approval or whether they're unaware and they just need the time to understand what the proposal is. So we're- and most importantly, it's an, it, it, it puts a requirement on, uh, on the applicants, the smaller applicants, or the applicants who are not as sophisticated as the ones that Gail referred to who do know how to work with community boards, but may have one little project somewhere and, you know, all they do is file it and the community board may not otherwise be aware of it because they do get a rush of applications. So we just want to make sure that they are aware, that they do have notice, and um, uh, they can prepare appropriately. Okay, interesting. Um, all right, well, we made it through. Let's we wrap do up a, with... We should do a lightning round yeah, to, those, to wrap up. Those last you, couple of questions, we got we to get from you. Go ahead. Well, you know, you've been through this process. You've been around a long time. For the next Charter Vision Commission, because we seem to have these occasionally, what top priorities that you would recommend they take up that you didn't get to in this round? Oh, I have to go first? <laughs> um, That's the prerogatives of being <laughs> the chair. All the credit, all the blame. Yeah. Um... I still think there's there's room for more in the election arena. Um, we have a gold standard in our campaign finance, but as you know, one of our members was particularly interested in the idea of democracy vouchers as a way to encourage voter participation by encouraging the ability to fund candidates. Um, and I just say democracy vouchers, uh, where they have them, each registered voter gets a certain sum of money that they can distribute to candidates of their choice to fund their campaign. 
I think that idea has some interest and some some merit, but it hasn't really been used in many places, and we weren't ready to go with it. That was Sal Albanese's baby appointee of Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, and and something that also though could be potentially taken up by local law, right? If maybe mm, no? we've looked at the question, it's possible, but we're not positive. The other thing that went with that, um, that certainly Staten Island was very interested in and we heard a lot about was nonpartisan voting. Mm. That has been taken up by other charter revisions. The voters defeated it. It will be interesting in a ranked choice voting world in the future to think about how that might play into general elections and nonpartisan voting. So we are in a time of transition of democracy and how people um, manifest their uh, choices. Maybe we'll see something in the future discussed. And Carl? Yeah, I, I would say uh, sort of I, – I don't – I think future charter commissions are going to be quite – at least for the foreseeable future – quite targeted on specific problems. I think what this charter commission – as you said at the outset, it's the first charter commission that had an unlimited mandate. And the uh, imprimatur that I think the charter commission uh, placed on city government was that, as Gail said, uh, that the, is that the 1989 charter commission got it pretty much right. And that there will be tweaks along the way, but this is a, a reaffirmation of uh, of a major effort that happened 30 years ago. Uh, um, I think we'll see how ranked choice voting works. I think we'll see how some of the um, uh, budgeting issues work and the, and the ethics issues work. But I think what we'll see in at least in the next charter commissions to come in the foreseeable future are much more targeted efforts at specific problems that arise. And to your question, Andrew, I... Surprises wouldn't be surprises if we didn't if we knew them in advance. <laughs> okay, um, Gail Benjamin, chair of the 2019 Charter Revision Commission, Carl Weisbrod, commissioner on that commission. Thank you both for being here, listeners. Remember, early voting starts October 26th and runs to November 3rd, and then election day is November 5th. There will be five questions on your ballot, along with some races, uh, in some cases, depending on where you live. They are in very small font, so don't mistake those for anything else. You got to read them and yes or no on all five questions. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.